Listeners be advised. This series contains conversations about mental health, trauma, sexual abuse, gun violence, and racism. Given that we are an indigenous-led organization, the food's always fire, to be honest. (laughs) Anytime there's potlucks, we're always eating good. The ladies here, they get down. That's Genevieve Flores Haro. And I am the Associate Director for the Misteco Indigena Community Organizing Project, or MICOP, for short. Like all the organizations featured in this series, MICOP does a lot. Wellness, behavioral health, support for survivors of domestic violence and unaccompanied minors. And then on the admin side, I, I cover for MICOP special events, communications, our policy agenda. I also build furniture. What's required sometimes at a nonprofit where you got to build your desk. She's not kidding, and it shouldn't surprise anyone. In fact, if your job is to provide mental health services to immigrant and BIPOC communities, regardless of who's funding you, it's a largely do-it-yourself proposition. For example, During the Healing the Soul application process, we had to present and get approved by different bodies in county behavioral health. She's talking about a program called Healing the Soul that uses indigenous practices like plant medicine and energy movement, to treat anxiety and depression. But since the mainstream mental health community doesn't typically collect data on traditional treatments, MICOP has taken it upon itself to build a body of evidence that they work, and they have to convince people to fund them. In that particular advisory group, nobody looked like us, nobody was from our community. It felt very gatekeeping in that body. So that was step one. Step two, we had to get approval by the Behavioral Health Advisory Board. And someone that was in the first meeting had mentioned, well, this barely passed. And I want everyone here to know that this barely passed. So maybe we shouldn't pass it. Again, she was in a position of asking people who weren't from her community for permission to provide their services there. And just getting really problematic questions of like, oh, you think you're going to beat your drums? And like, that's going to fix people's mental health or my son has autism and we did acupuncture and that didn't work. So what makes you think that your community defined practices are going to work? This is really problematic question. From the California Panethnic Health Network, you're listening to A Right to Heal, a podcast about health equity in California. I'm your host, Akintunde Ahmad. In this episode, we're talking with two providers in Southern California working to break through the walls of systemic racism that keep people from the care they need. With major changes likely coming to California's Mental Health Services Act, funding for these organizations is uncertain. Still, they're each finding ways to provide more than just direct services. One is increasing political engagement in her community. The other is working to legitimize traditional practices within the mainstream mental health system. Both talk today about community-driven services, why they're so crucial, and how to expand them. Here's Genevieve again. I come from a bicultural family. My father immigrated from Mexico when he was about five to this country. My mother is second or third generation here, but also of Mexican descent. Genevieve grew up in Oxnard, where MICOP is based. They operate in Santa Barbara, 
San Luis Obispo, and Ventura counties. Many of their services are aimed at language barriers and access to local healthcare systems. There's nothing easy about that work, but it's actually more complicated than it sounds. And a lot of folks seem to think that if you're from Mexico, automatically you speak Spanish. And, and that's not the case. Mexico is home to over 68 different indigenous nations, and each has their own language, their own culture. Part of why we were founded back in 2001 was because there was a lack of interpreters in county clinics, for example. So folks would come and they were unable to access services because no one could speak their language. I think a lot of people are unaware of how deep the systemic racism, how deep colonialism, how deep colorism permeates in our community. We've had over 500 years of being told, don't speak your language, speak Spanish. And then you cross the border, don't speak Spanish, speak English. Genevieve says the language and culture barriers in our community are so formidable that much of the work is just helping people become grounded in the idea that anyone is trying to help. And we're seeing that play out in agriculture fields where our folks get the worst jobs. We're seeing that being played out in the school grounds where you have kids that are also perpetuating these stereotypes and calling our kids derogatory names, bullying them. And so we're having to go deep and like peel back these layers with some of the folks that we're working with. And once we do, it's amazing. It's incredible. But there's a lot of things that we're having to unlearn and recover, to be honest. And so there's a lot that we have to unpack before even getting to service delivery. In some of my COPS programs, service delivery includes two critical components beyond the actual service evaluating and documenting the results of services the community says it wants. It's all part of their initiative to produce evidence for community-driven mental health practices. Genevieve broke down for me how they did that with a program called Living with Love. So Living with Love, for example, was developed back in 2010 as a domestic violence curriculum. And so it is culturally responsive, culturally rooted, culturally defined within our indigenous communities. So there's one about healing your inner child. There's one about indigenous pride, family dynamics, unhealthy family behaviors. And that was developed in 2010. And then in 2016, it was selected to be part of the California Reducing Disparities Project. And so now we're moving that curriculum. We've evaluated it for six years and we're moving that to be evidence-based. Quick note here. You might remember in our first episode, a consultant named Kalechi Ubozo talked about communities helping to design their own mental health care. You know, I have gotten to witness firsthand the beauty that is community-defined evidence practices or CDEPs. And I wish they were better funded, but they could not have existed on this scale without something that was transforming the mental health system. The transformation she's referencing is the Mental Health Services Act, which, for years, has funded CDEPs and the studies that prove they work. Advocates like Kalechi now worry that if the funding gets diverted, BIPOC communities could lose the services that work best for their populations. Here's Genevieve. 
because when we think about evidence-based practices, especially within the mental health field, oftentimes evidence-based is for folks who are white, who are not from our communities, who don't look like us, who aren't faced with the same traumatic issues that we're facing. And so for us, it's important to contribute to those evidence-based practices so that we can have something that is more responsive to community members' needs. This is a tea that you can drink. There's breath work. There's massage work. And again, these are things that are culturally defined. And these are things that we've been using for thousands of years that we know help support us when we're feeling X, Y, and Z. Because frankly, there's no data really around those types of things. And so it's up to us to create that data, to publish that data, and to disseminate that data versus having someone from the outside come in, study us, and then slap a Dr. John Smith on it. Thanks to Genevieve for her time and perspective today. In any of the work that we do, we have data, we have numbers, but behind all those numbers and statistics, there's individuals, there's real humans there. That's Cynthia Romo, Civic Engagement Program Manager at Altamed Health Services, a nonpartisan group serving Los Angeles and Orange Counties. And the communities are very much very similar in the sense of the need that's there. When we're talking about underserved, you're talking about no insurance, no income, maybe English is not their first language. Cynthia was born in Mexico and later grew up in Southeast Los Angeles. And she learned from a young age how challenging it can be for immigrants and people of color to navigate the healthcare system. My dad, when he was diagnosed with cancer, I had an interpret for him his second diagnosis that said, you only have less than a year. So I had to tell my dad that, you know, with oncologists there, my mother who does not speak English, translate to them. This resonates with a lot of different people as well. We shouldn't be put in that position. And I remember my parents, you know, going to children's hospital, several emergency room visits, because we didn't have the access to preventive care. Because we had connections still in Mexico, I would go once a month to Mexico and see my pediatrician and have that medication. These days, if there's a doctrine that fuels Cynthia's professional life, it's this. Your health is political. If you're not healthy, and that encompasses all, mental health, physical health, etc., you can't really address any other issues. And with health comes everything around it. In Cynthia's view, health is the key to everything. She says poor physical health leads to poor mental health. Poor mental health leads to poor community health. And poor community health leads to more racial, social, and economic inequity. We need to have elected officials who represent our interest and speak for us. We have to get them involved in voting and being counted on the census and knowing about redistricting, talking to their elected officials. In that spirit, Cynthia is always talking to people about voting. And she told me about a meeting she had with L.A. County officials who were suggesting locations to set up voting centers in her community. They were suggesting different locations for these vote centers. Oh, like county buildings. Yeah, our community's not going to go to a county building. Right next to a police station? No. Then someone suggested setting up voting centers in churches. But an LGBTQ community member said, I do not feel comfortable going into certain 
religious institutions that don't support my community. That was a big, like, I had to take two steps back and say, you know what? I didn't experience that, but I need to advocate for that. So she came up with a solution. Hey, you feel comfortable? Come and vote here at one of our clinics where you're a patient, where you go get your medication, you go see your behavioral therapist, and right there in the parking lot is a vote center. So we've done that. It's these kinds of creative solutions that really define community-driven healthcare. Over 90% of our workforce live in the service areas. So we're not coming from the outside in and being prescriptive about this is what the community needs. No, because that's not going to work. Cynthia saw that prescriptive approach fail early in her career when she worked as an interpreter for a nutritionist who counseled women with gestational diabetes. She said, okay, what did you eat today? And then she said, you know what? You should really focus on, you know, maybe having almond butter rather than peanut butter. And and I kind of looked at the nutritionist and I said, I'm from this community. Almond butter is like six bucks. You know, peanut butter is just like a dollar at the 99 cent store. And I remember I sat, you know, after the patient left, I talked to her and I said, our patients, and I do not relate to your food menus, where it's expensive. It's like, She was completely unaware. She was nice and everything, and she was very well-informed. But you can't tell me, hey, spend six bucks on almond butter. Thanks to Cynthia and Genevieve for sharing their insights. And thanks for listening today. Coming up... Please, no outbursts of laughing, please. Respect our process, please. But our experience in the last 20 years, combined with the new programmatic pressures this bill presents, has proven that greater protections for kids are needed. Intellectual honesty would have us admitting that by not increasing the 1% tax and adding additional pressures to counties, both political and fiscal, will amount in cuts to services. We're asking you not to mortgage our future to do so. On the next episode of A Right to Heal. A Right to Heal is a production of Studio to Be Seattle for the California Panethnic Health Network. The series is produced by Akintunde Ahmad, Trey Bundy, and Chloe Behrens. Trey Bundy is our editor. Mixing and sound design by Alec Cowan. Original music by Elena Penderhughes. Carolina Valle and Mihe Jung Lozano are executive producers for the California Panethnic Health Network. Joaquin Alvarado is executive producer for Studio To Be Seattle. Mihei Jung Lozano and Carolina Valle are executive producers for CPIN. See you next time.